I have entitled the message, I must decrease and he must increase, because that's the last verse we'll study. And it's really the underlying theme that runs all the way up to that verse. We're going to begin with John chapter 3, verse 22. We're coming out of the passage that deals with Nicodemus, where Jesus has ministered to Nicodemus. He has already done a number of things in his ministry. He was baptized by John in the River Jordan, driven to the wilderness by the Spirit, tempted of Satan for 40 days. The warfare began, and in that sense, really, his ministry was launched. He came back from the wilderness. John pointed him out publicly as the Messiah. Andrew and John immediately responded to that word. From there, he began to minister. So we have followed him all the way up into his time of ministering to Nicodemus. And as we come to John chapter 3 to verse 22, John opens up by saying, After these things, and it is after the things I have just mentioned, that Jesus and his disciples then came into the land of Judea. It says here that he remained with them and baptized. What Jesus did is he left the city and went out into the country. Now we are nearing the end of John the Baptist's ministry and pretty close to the end of his life. So we come to a very interesting section as we see their ministries going on simultaneously. I want to just get right to the outline and tell you that what we're going to look at for this time is the contention of John's disciples and then the contentment of John in the face of all of this contention. It is just, to me, a fascinating passage, deeply ministered to my own heart this week. To begin with the contention of John's disciples in verse 22, we have the final period of John's ministry and the setting for all of this. Jesus came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with his disciples and baptized. It says in verse 23, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was much water there, and they came and they were baptized. Jesus went out of the city into the country, and he remained there with his disciples, and he baptized. But we know that he himself did not baptize. Just look at your Bible. In the next chapter, in chapter 4, at verse 2, where it says, Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So he is out there, and as if to immediately demonstrate his superiority to John the Baptist, his men baptize, but he himself does not personally, because he was greater than John the Baptist. And it is a wonderful thing to read here that even as his his uh, disciples are baptizing, it says he was baptizing. It's a beautiful picture of the link that we have with our Savior. When we are involved in his work, we become his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears in the world. And his ministry goes on in the world through us. But there's something else here in the fact that he left the city and came out into the country that I really love to contemplate. It is a subtle indication of the unwearied labor of Jesus. I don't know if you thought very much about how hard Jesus worked on the behalf of fallen man to reach them with the good news of the kingdom of heaven. He came out into the country at this point, not for privacy. There were times when he said, the multitudes are pressing in on us. We've got to get away for some privacy and they would depart for privacy. At this point, he did not go into the country so much for privacy as he did for greater usefulness. You see, in the city of Jerusalem, his miracles, his preaching, perhaps made a greater noise than they did out in the country because of the fountainhead of all the news traveling so quickly, the buzz of all the people connecting one to another, sharing what he did. But in the city, you had the influence, the overarching influence, always of the antagonistic religious leaders who were so much against him that they were almost like the instruments of the devil to go around and pick up the seed as soon as it was sown, like he talked about in the parable of the sower. So it's obvious at this point that he goes out into the country for greater usefulness, not just to get away and have a retreat. And in seeing that, I love to contemplate the fact that just often we forget all of his physical effort. You see, Jesus traveled around so much. He, like Paul the Apostle, was always moving. 
He had no certain dwelling place. We read at one point that everybody in the evening went up to their own houses and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. He didn't have a place to stay. You may gripe about your apartment. You may gripe about your house. Jesus, most of his ministry, had no certain dwelling place and he was always on the move, laboring often to the point of exhaustion. In Psalm 19.6, there's an interesting verse. It says, speaking of the sun, that its rising is from one end of heaven and a circuit of the sun goes to the other and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Matthew Henry took that comment and he applied it to this passage with Jesus and he said this, So this trip to the country was an instance of unwearied industry in the work for which he came into the world that it took many a weary step to do good to souls. He says the Son of Righteousness took a large circuit to diffuse his light and heat. That is so good. Always walking, always moving around with his disciples in a large circuit, the Son of Righteousness to diffuse his light and heat among the lost men that he came to save. You know, you look at the labor of Jesus Christ and you can't help but ask yourself, have I caught any of the spirit of this? In our day of modern technology, in our day of drive-through restaurants and drive-up banking and this kind of thing, have we lost a sense of laboring hard? Jesus was always walking, always laboring. When they had a meal, it took hours to prepare it. We get the microwave door open, slam something in there, beep, 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 walk away, come back and impatiently stand and wait for the food to come out. I wonder if we understand how hard he and his disciples really did work and how hard John the Baptist worked for that matter. And so in departing from the city for greater usefulness, there's a subtle indication of the unwearied labor of Jesus Christ. Now, not far from where he was tarrying, John the Baptist had also made a move and he was just down the way and he was preaching and baptizing as well. Verse 23 says, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. Now, here is a good case for water baptism. If you'll notice, it says, Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water. It is a good case specifically for water baptism by immersion. It's funny, you know, you read the commentators and depending on where they have come from and what their background is, if they have a Presbyterian background and they sprinkle, they'll approach the text and immediately say, now this is no case for baptism by immersion. And I always want to say, pardon me, then why does it say because there was much water there? Why not just say he was baptizing and let it go? Why put in because? Because you need a lot of water to baptize people by immersion. Recently, when we were in Israel, we had a lot of water. We were in the Jordan River. It was very cold. Melted snow, actually, rolling down through the Jordan River. And we did a big water baptism combined with uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's church and Roger Cochran from out in Long Beach, David Rosales, our church. And we got to put on white robes and stand in the Jordan River and baptize. And there was much water there in that place. And one lady grabbed hold of me as she slipped. And the problem was, Pastor Chuck has built this wonderful facility where you can walk down a ramp into the Jordan River and hold on to a railing and stand on the nice paved stones underneath the water and baptize with a sure footing. Because of the flooding, we weren't able to stand there. It had messed everything up. So we had to stand on these jagged rocks so you find this place to put your feet and get all settled. And somebody came out, lady gets all excited, and I'm dunking her because there was much water in this place. <laughs> and I'm not kidding, we just about both went all the way down the river. It was all I could do. I went over with her. And my feet are scrambling underneath the water to find a smooth spot to grab. The ministry of the big toe at that point was very important. <laughs> We were there baptizing because there was much water in that place. And of course, the Jordan River has a special significance and you get a certificate 
that you can have your name put on that you were baptized in the Jordan River, which of course makes you more spiritual than all your friends. <laughs> but this is a good case for water baptism by immersion. That's the setting. Now, there is this overlap of the ministry of Jesus and John, which leads us to this dispute and this contention with his disciples. It's a very interesting thing that John says in verse 24. He says, for John, John the Baptist, had not yet been thrown into prison. You read that right in the middle of this flow, and you might wonder, why that? Why does he just throw that in there? He was baptizing because there was much water, because he was not yet thrown into prison. I don't get the connection. You see, the connection is this. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you didn't read John, you would have the impression that Jesus started his public ministry after John was thrown into prison. You see, in Matthew 4.12, it says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee, and then away he goes with his preaching. In Mark 1.14, same thing. After John was put into prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So you assume, and I did for years, that Jesus started his ministry publicly preaching after John was put in prison and that the reason he did that is because he had to let John's ministry run its course and then he stepped out onto the scene. Well, the Apostle John, writing many years after these Gospels were given, is wanting us to know that there is a gap of time where the ministry of Jesus and John overlaps. And that is what leads up then to this account that the Apostle John shares with us. So here is this time period of overlap. Now think about it. Due to the nature of John's ministry, there would have to be a period of overlap. Because John is out there preaching away, scholars tend to feel that there was about a six-month period here from March to December, where Jesus tarried and was baptizing, John was preaching and all of this. And you'd have to realize that here's John preaching, and in a day when you didn't have the media capabilities and all that we have today, where people are on location live on the other side of the world, John didn't have that. So he's out preaching, pointing out the Messiah. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Immediately, Andrew and John, whoo, they're gone. They follow Jesus, and Jesus begins his ministry. But there was no TV. John the Baptist couldn't say, we're here on location in the Jordan River, and as you can see, the Lamb of God is coming by. And I just want you to say, that is the whole reason I came. Follow Him. Don't follow me anymore. So long, folks. It's been great preaching to you, live from here on location. Grasshoppers, camel hair, and the whole thing. Converts and repentance. So long, follow Jesus. Just couldn't do it that way. There was a ripple effect. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and, and that begins to spread and go out. But in the meantime, people have been making the long journey out to hear him. And all they know is what they've heard about John the Baptist. They know nothing of Christ and that he's come on the scene. So with that ripple effect, then you would understand why Jesus would then begin his ministry. In the meantime, people are still coming to John who know nothing of Jesus. And that is one of the reasons for the overlap. The other reason for the overlap is that Jesus wanted to begin his ministry at a certain point of time, and it seems to be about six months before, so that when John was thrown into prison and he was then executed, all of his followers would already have begun to follow Jesus and the work ordained from before the foundation of the world would then never miss a beat. You understand? So there'd be no confusion, no chaos. And the third reason really for all of this happening this way is that the, just the appointed time, then with these things developing like this, John was executed so that there would be no unnecessary confusion and people would not have to make a choice of John the Baptist or Jesus. And in fact, that was already beginning to develop right here in the passage. And we are just about at the end of the six-month period. John is within weeks, if not months, of his death, the end of his life. So God has his hand on all of this, and it just helps to move through here and understand how this is all put together in the final period of John's ministry. It is also a wonderful side thought to contemplate that it is always a comfort to useful men when they're passing off the stage of their ministry, to see that God is raising up capable individuals to fill their place. And that is a wonderful thing when that happens. 
We are even in our day witnessing the changing of the guard. J. Vernon McGee, a long-time, steadfast, beloved man, uh, on the radio and preaching for years, died and went to heaven. Recently, Chuck Swindoll uh, retired from his ministry in Fullerton after so many years. Many of the peers of these men are rising up in age. Billy Graham is just about at the end of his ministry, and people are looking around wondering who the next Billy Graham is going to be, and some of us have some ideas about it. So there is a changing of the guard that comes in generations, and it's a wonderful thing when those who have gone before and literally labored their hearts out can see that they're being replaced by capable individuals. So all of this in the final period of John's ministry. Now, in the middle of this comes this dispute about John's ministry versus the ministry of Jesus. And that's what I want to draw your attention to now in verse 25. It says here, There arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now, if you know anything about the Jews at that time, you know how much they were into purification. You remember when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana? There were the big earthen pots full of water the Jews used for purification. You can go through the Gospels and everywhere you turn, they're running water over their hands and they're making a big deal how you do it, all about purification. They were really into this purification and water thing. And it always had to be running water. And there's so much we could say about it, but the point is this, you can see them coming. Now here is John with his purification ministry as they perceive it. You must be baptized to be purified in your repentance. Now Jesus has shown up on the scene and he's got his disciples baptizing and you know the question in their minds would be, all right, whose purification rite through baptism is more effective than the others? Which one? So there arises a dispute with John the Baptist's disciples with these Jews about the matter and it seems to be that that's what it was. Is John the one with the better baptism or is Jesus? When you come up out of the water with one or the other, which one leaves you more purified? Well, all of that then brought around this dispute that we now see here as they come to John in verse 26. It says, And they came to John, that is his disciples, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. Now you can just see them, can't you? Their arms are folded, body language, kind of an uptight body language. That's what this is. And they come to Jesus and they have a petty dispute. And what I want you to see here as we move into this is these guys are very emblematic of those who come with petty disputes among the people of God. And rather than furthering the kingdom, they want to dispute about who's better than the other and who they're following and all of this kind of thing. And one of the things that I want you to see is that these disputes are often from questionable sources. It says in verse 26, They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. Notice they don't even mention Jesus' name. They come in, Rabbi, great respect for John. He who was with you beyond Jordan, he has a name. And John made a big deal out of him, but they're not making a big deal out of him. They're saying he's down there baptizing and everyone is coming. See, these are questionable sources, these men. There are always those among God's people that seem to be more interested in increasing their own party than they are in increasing true Christianity. These men are like that. You remember the carnal Corinthians had the same problem? In 1 Corinthians 1.12, Paul said, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. And the problem was, he goes on to say, Aren't you carnal if you live like that? You see, you're missing the point. The Corinthians, the carnal Corinthians, were questionable people at that time. Their commitment to God and all. You come back and you look at John's disciples and they come with this dispute and you have to say these are questionable men as well. You know why? Because John was constantly pointing to Christ. Why are these men getting upset that people are going and following John's instructions? Why are they coming and upset that Jesus now has more followers? You see, if they were really listening to John's message and not just infatuated with his great personality. I mean, he was quite a personality. 
if they were really listening to his message instead of following him and what they liked about him as, quote, a prophet, then they would have listened for a while and left, like Andrew did, like John did. The day John said, Behold the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world, they were gone. What are these guys do, doing still hanging around? So these followers upset because people are following John's message and going to Jesus. They are those who really should be held suspect. It is also a good indication of the fact that you can have a great preacher preaching the right message and people can sit and listen week after week and even like that preacher, like the message even to an extent, but never really hear the message. You understand what I'm saying? Nothing wrong with John, but something wrong with these guys. What was wrong with them with their ears? They loved to hear him preach, probably got all excited. You know, some of them might have been in sales. Go out and hear John preach just to get pumped up and go back and do a few good sales, you know, back in town. Ooh, I'm all fired up. I could sell anything now after hearing him preach. Who knows? But the point is, they weren't really listening to his message, even though they were devout followers of him. So they are those that bring these petty disputes, and they often come from questionable sources like this. Another thing I want you to see is these disputes are often associated with sectarian jealousy. These disputes that come among God's people. Verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. You see, they saw John and Jesus as rivals. There is always a generation that really can see no good except in its own ranks. I do pray that we are never like that in this church. But no matter what God does here in our midst, no matter how much He blesses us, that we never go out and are those kind that would have this kind of attitude. That if we see God begin to bless more and more and more some other church nearby, that we would never have a jealousy like these guys have. These disputes are often associated with jealousy. Another thing about these disputes is they are often associated with exaggeration. You see how they said, and all are coming to him? That's not even true. That is not even true at all. Jesus actually had very few followers at this time. Oh, all the people are following him. That isn't even true. But isn't it true that when your mind is, and heart is full of jealousy, and you're caught into this thing of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and you see something going away you don't like and you're jealous that it sort of feeds your exaggeration level and the stories you tell and the, and the gossip you bear along on its way that you add to as it goes by for the sake of the prayer chain. The exaggeration is fed by often these feelings inside that are not good feelings, feelings of jealousy, passionate prejudice, this kind of thing. Now, as we look at this, and we see these petty disputes rising among God's people, I just want to encourage you, we need to be on our guard against this. We really do, because this kind of thing is so contagious. You know why it's contagious? It appeals to your flesh. You've probably said it yourself. Now, the only reason I'm sharing this with you is, is so you can really pray about it. This isn't gossip. When you know, even as you say this is not gossip, it is gossip. And it's just a disclaimer. This isn't gossip. This is so you can pray accurately. And you know, you're lying. You know that this is the juiciest gossip you've heard about in ages. And you're burning to tell it to someone. Now make sure you call everybody you know. And really pray. Don't leave out any of these dirty details I've told you. You see, this kind of thing's contagious. This attitude. If it comes your way, strike it down. Don't let it get into you. Just turn away from it. Nothing so defiles Christianity and our witness to the world as petty jealousies and divisions among us and a focus on all the wrong things other than Christ. May God help us and may we be on our guard. You see, if God is at work, we ought to be able to rejoice, right? That leads us to the next main thing. We've talked about the contention of John's disciples. Now let's talk about the contentment of John by contrast here. John is an amazing man. If you think of the timing in his life, he knows he's down toward the end. And he's probably wondering, how's God going to get me out of the picture? Little does he know that a sword is going to sever his head from his body. He doesn't even know that, but he knows he's coming down toward the end. 
So he has to be contemplating these things. All the more then are we to be instructed by his behavior in the middle of this. John was content in the middle of all this. He wasn't ruffled by it. He didn't get involved in it. didn't get carried away by it. didn't have sleepless nights. didn't chime in with these guys. You see, John was content because he saw true successes from God and not from man. That is so important. Look at verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Do you know that he has more people following him than you? Do you know that you're like a star that's sort of fading out and another one is eclipsing you? Do you understand that you're kind of fading away while he's becoming more prominent? And John says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He saw true successes from God and not man. You know what that means? He realized that God sovereignly blesses ministries and that God alone can bless an individual with a gift mix, if I can put it that way. I look at some of the people I know and they are so gifted, I'm amazed. Some of the friends I have and I see how God uses them and I look at their gift mix and they've had it all the way along and I've prayed for that gift mix and I still don't have it. And I have my one. And they have their list of gifts. And I'm amazed to watch them as God uses them. He understood that God alone can sovereignly bless with a gift mix. And that a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, Paul said, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Now God has done that with you. Some of you have so many gifts, and you're just amazing people. Others of you are more like me. You have one or two max, and you know it. And you've been praying for a third. No answer. Heaven is silent. Year on end, like God was with Joseph, you know, all those years. And you're waiting. But you see, a man can receive nothing unless it's given to him from heaven. He understood God alone can bless with a gift mix. Another thing is that John understood that God alone can bless the effect of a gift mix. That is so important. He gives the gift mix, but He alone can drive home the effectiveness of those gifts to the extent that He wants to. And we have to let God do that. John is effectively saying, I cannot command continued success in my ministry. He's saying, I can only receive what God gives me. I can't now get something going. Oh, wow, I'm losing followers. What am I going to do? Well, you guys go get me some church growth books. You know, let's rally around the flagpole here and figure out how to get a crowd out here. Hey, a man's got to have a crowd. Or it's too embarrassing. It's humiliating. Especially when I've been so popular and so famous. No. He understood that he couldn't do that. He was keenly aware, like Paul was when he said in first. Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. You think like that? See, Paul said, so then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. I think you're going to find the longer we stare at John and think about all this, the more, if you open your heart, you're going to be moving into a place of rest before God. Here is John, and he understands that true success in terms of ministry comes from God and not man. God gives the gifts. And then given the fact that there is an equal amount of effort and labor, God alone can drive home the effectiveness of that gift and spread it abroad as He pleases. I think this is a good place to talk about numbers as it relates to churches and ministries and how it relates to success in the spiritual realm. I don't know how much you think about that or what you think of it, but we must all be aware of the deception of numbers as it relates to ministry. As God begins to use you and, and you begin to get zealous and effective, you're going to face the snare of numbers. Whether you have a small group and people are coming to your home fellowship and you just very slyly and casually inquire of a few of the other leaders and uh, how many were at, oh, at your house the other night? And uh, then you hear how many were there. And you think, yeah, <laughs> we had more because, you know, I'm one of those people with a lot of gifts. And of course, this is sort of a two-gift mix over here. You know, we have our ways of comparing whatever it is you're doing. The numbers thing, the church you go to, is it blessed or is it not? How many people does it have? That kind of thing. We have to all beware of the deception of numbers. 
Numbers are never the measure of the success of a ministry. Shall I say that again? Numbers are never the measure of the success of a ministry. People make so many sad mistakes here. I've seen good men of God change the whole course of their life over this very issue. All men are coming out to them over here, and your numbers are going down here. I have seen good men of God change their whole philosophy of ministry over this, change their whole life. Watch them become bitter and envious and jealous because their peers are attracting the multitudes, and they're not. They don't have the mega church that some of their friends have. And I've seen them cave into that, get bitter at God for not blessing them like He's blessing their friends. Do you understand that this is one of the things that literally destroyed the life of King Saul? If ever a man had everything going for him, it was Saul. Tall, dark, and handsome. Literally. He stood head and shoulders above the people. He was chosen of God. I mean, how much more do you need? Turn in your Bible, could you, to 1 Samuel chapter 18? 1 Samuel 18. You find here that one of the great mistakes of King Saul was that he failed to rest in the sovereignty of God, like John the Baptist did. When the numbers of someone near him began to excel his, his whole life went into a tailspin. And it literally consumed his life from that point on. 1 Samuel 18.5 Saul is working with David and he sends him out to do battles. And David does such a good job. God blesses him so much that it literally is more than Saul can take. It says, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. So everybody was happy. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and tambourines and lutes, so it's all a big deal. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was like, hold it, what was that? Stop that singing. Sing that verse over again. What was that? Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. And look at this, verse 8, Saul was very angry. He stopped the singing, he got all mad. It says the refrain, this refrain galled him. They have accredited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands? What more can he get but the kingdom? You see how into numbers he was? I mean, he might as well just be king then. If they're going to accredit all this to him, what is left but just to simply be king? Because numbers are everything after all. And look at this, verse 9, And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. That is so sick! But isn't it just like the human heart? Left unsurrendered to God? Saul thought in his mind, not even talking to anybody about it. You see, I think often of what Jesus said of the good master in the parable of the vineyard. Some had been blessed by this master, they had no money, no work. He took them into the field and paid them. Then he went and draw others throughout the day. He drew others and paid them the same thing. By the end of the day, those that had been out there all day and got paid by this good, benevolent master got mad that the people who came at the end of the day got and worked very little got the same pay. And they came and they're griping and they were jealous. And the master, Matthew twenty fifteen says, Is it not lawful me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? The NIV renders it, are you envious because I'm generous? The disciples of John came and said, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And John is completely unruffled. So what? Totally content. May God help us to be that way. At crucial times in our life especially, I have seen, as I've said to you, so many fall to this snare. It is so tragic when, and to watch them drag others down with them. Because if you're talking pastors and you're talking leaders of ministry, you are always talking about the followers behind them when they fall into their snares. Inevitably, people will follow. I've repeatedly watched in amazement as pastors that I have known have become upset because their church 
200 people year after year, 300 people year after year, whatever, 500 people year after year, 800 people year after year. But their peers have a church of 4,000, 5,000. They can't stand it. It eats at them. And they think jealous thoughts. So finally, they cave in to this self-imposed pressure that is all based on this thing of numbers, that numbers are success. And they begin to change things. And they begin to desire a larger congregation more than anything else. And too often, crowds, excitement, noise, physical bustle are regarded by these people as the criteria of success. But these things by themselves are not the right criteria of success. You can build a large following a lot of ways. Brethren, we're in a time period in America where people are groping for something with meaning. We have a generation of moral flatliners who believe in nothing. Young children, teenagers who think nothing of filling another human being with bullets. Riddle their body with bullets, kill them, stand on the street with the cop as they're busted and arrested. And when asked, does it bother you that you just killed someone without batting an eye? They will say, no, it doesn't. Why should it? I mean, after all, he looked at me funny. That's how far down we have sunk as a society. Well, the backlash of that is now people are beginning to grope again for spiritual things. They want some absolutes. They're caught in this vortex into this black hole of nothingness, and they're seeing the fallout of it, so people are groping for spirituality. Now, think of that. If then in this environment you can be told by a man who's tired of not having a megachurch and now will do anything, as we would say in the vernacular, he would kill to get it, and he has killed everything living now in his church to get it. If you can go to his church and see him up there with all this entertainment, some guy who climbed Mount Everest, whatever, some movie star who's a has-been, but will show up in churches to speak. If you can come to a place like this and hear some nice songs sung and, and have an entertaining time and a bandy about the name of Jesus occasionally and sometimes mention God and be told that this is all you need and nothing about sin... Can you imagine how people out of the vortex of our society would flock into that? And that is exactly what they're doing. Now, why do you have that going on? Rather than people coming in and hearing the Word of God preached, the message unchanged, relevant as it always has been, and being brought into a relationship with the living God. Why do you have people being sent out on the broad road thinking they're on the narrow road, on the way to hell when they think now they're on the way to heaven? Really no better off than they were before they came in. Why? Because these people in leadership are like those that came to John and said, do you know that there's a bigger following over here and doesn't that just irk you? Because they're like Saul, who when they sang of the ten thousands of David, simply couldn't live with that. Men who cannot live with a small following. Why? Because they misunderstand true success in ministry. is not based on numbers. You tell me, off the top of your head, how many people were in the upper room after Jesus went back into heaven, after three years of flawless ministry, 30,000 on a hillside eating miracle bread from heaven, people walking all over to get to Jesus. You tell me how many were at the cross when he was dying. Out of all those hundreds of thousands of people, many of them touched and healed and delivered from demons. And how many were in the upper room? Tell me, how many were up the upper room? 120 people gathered together. The number of the disciples being 120. Where did everybody else go? Now, if you want to talk about successive ministry, I would say that Jesus should have bailed. He should have got himself a rock band. Maybe a clown act or something like that. Become a little more contemporary. Maybe wear designer clothes instead of that patchy old robe he wore around. Ragtag group he had with him. You know, those guys were nerds. They weren't with it. Look at those guys that are with him. You see, that is not to say that a rock band isn't a useful tool in the kingdom of God. It isn't to say that people in sharp designer clothes like myself this evening <laughs> can't be used of God. But I've seen so many cave into this all because they don't understand that numbers is not a criteria, really, for success spiritually. Do you know the measure of true spiritual effectiveness is internal, holy affection for God. Spiritual intelligence. To be able to dialogue on a high level like Paul did in Ephesians, the first chapters, speaking of things in heavenly places. That is success. To turn people out as they leave the doors of your building with a new understanding of God and a new zeal for Him. That's spiritual success. 
to take a dead heart and melt the ice that's there, roll away the stone that's there, and bring out a living thing that breathes with heat for God. That's spiritual success. To have a man or woman turn from their sin to follow Christ, that's spiritual success. To have them be able to articulate what they believe about God and what the Bible says, that's spiritual success. To have them carry around Bibles that are all marked up on the inside, lines, colors, everything. Then all the pages are tattered, busted up, ragtag looking thing. Mine's pretty clean looking. This is a new one. No, I'm kidding. This is my preaching Bible. But you see, to have people with dirty Bibles and clean lives, this is all spiritual success. Not big followings. With today's media, with today's marketing techniques, you can get a big following. You can be slick and cool and manipulative, even when people don't know they're being manipulated, and get a big following. But that is not spiritual success. Turn in your Bible to Ephesians 4.11. Paul articulates the way this thing should work and what true spiritual success is all about. If you are a leader in the church, if you are an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, teacher, your assignment is not to get a big following. This is your assignment right here. It is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That is your assignment. Whether you're an evangelist, whether you're apostolic, whether you're a pastor, teacher, your work is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Why? For the building up of the body of Christ. To what end? Verse 13, Till all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature, perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see the bottom line there? It's Christ-likeness. How do you measure spiritual success? Is there Christ-likeness in the people? That's the bottom line. If there's 18 of them and they're Christ-like, that's successful spiritual ministry. If there's 18,000 and they're Christ-like, that's successful spiritual ministry. If there's 180,000 and they're not Christ-like, it's a failure. It's useless. The things that we're talking about in Ephesians and the other things, these are from God. They're not from man. There's no such thing as usefulness in the kingdom of God apart from these things. And you can have a mega church if these things are not occurring. It's a worthless place in the eyes of God. And you can read through the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation and see what Jesus thinks about that. These are so important, these things to understand. Sometimes God sees fit to bless a ministry with great change and Christ-likeness in the people, as well as massive numbers. That is a wonderful thing when that occurs. And when it does, we can say with John the Baptist, a man can receive nothing except it's given to him from heaven. I love what Matthew Henry said. He said, why should we not be discontented, though we be inferior to others in gifts and usefulness, and be eclipsed by their excellencies? Why shouldn't we be content in the face of this? John was ready to own that it was the gift, the free gift of heaven, that made him a preacher, a prophet, a Baptist. It was God that gave him the interest he had and the love and esteem of the people. And if now his interest declines, God's will be done. He that gives may take. What we receive from heaven, we must take as it is given. John now never received a commission for a standing perpetual office, but only for a temporary one, which must soon expire. And therefore, when he has fulfilled his ministry, he can contentedly see it go out of date. That's right. You know what he's saying? Your will be done, Lord. A man can receive nothing unless it's given from heaven. These are some of the most liberating words you will ever read and contemplate in your whole life. It's all in the hands of God. John saw true success is from God and not from man. And another thing here is that he rejoiced in the success of another and didn't get jealous and envious. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness. I said I'm not the Christ. I've been sent before him. Not a trace of envy. Content to stand back and watch God bless Jesus. You want to know another one of John's secrets to contentment? He did not feel useless in the face of a greater giftedness. Let those words sink into yours because you may find you and one of your best friends called to a similar ministry and perhaps your best friend has a much 
greater giftedness than you in that ministry. If you're going to be content in God, you must rest with John in the fact that you are not useless in the face of greater giftedness. You see, the greater the gifts of some around you doesn't necessarily render that the labors of others that come short of them are needless. That's not right. It's not even true. You know why? Because there's so much work for all of us. So much work for all of us. I look around the valley and I see all the different churches here. And I realize we're just barely scratching the surface of reaching the people in our community for Christ. If someone nearby is more blessed than I, I, I'm so thankful God has used me at all. We should all look at it this way. You see, to sit down and be sullen and spiritually selfish and just say, well, you know what? If I'm going to be outshone that bad, I'm not going to do anything. That's a terrible attitude. Yet people cave into that. But we have but one talent, brethren. We're going to account for that talent. You realize that before God? You may be a one-trick pony. That's it. Well, here they go again. I can even tell you what they're going to say next. But you know what? If that's what your gift is, praise God. You're going to account to God for it. When we see ourselves outshone, we must yet go on to the last. Because people are going to come along and outshine us. They simply will. F.B. Meyer is one of my favorite commentators and examples as a Christian. He told the following experience to a few personal friends. He said, you know, it was easy to pray for the success of G. Campbell Morgan, who was a great, great minister of God. He said it was easy to pray for his success when he was in America. He said, but when he came back to England and it took a church near mine, all of a sudden things were different. He said, the old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy. But I got my heel up on his head, and whether I felt right toward my friend or not, I determined I was going to act right. My church gave a reception for him, and I acknowledged that if it was not necessary for me to preach on Sunday evenings, I would dearly love to go and hear G. Campbell Morgan preach myself. Well, that made me feel right toward him. But just see how the dear Lord helped me out of my difficulty. He goes on to say this, over on one side, there was G. Campbell Morgan and his ministry was exploding. Over on the other side of my church, there was Charles Spurgeon preaching to the multitudes and I in the middle. He said he and Morgan were so popular and they drew such huge crowds that our church in the middle caught the overflow and we ended up with all we could possibly accommodate. Isn't God good, he said. See, God is good. He got his heart right, was no longer jealous of Morgan, his friend, or his friend Spurgeon, and God blessed him. Maybe he wasn't as gifted as they were. Or maybe he was, and God just didn't decide to send that many people to him. You see, often there is the same gift mix, and if you listen side by side, you cannot discern any difference, but the crowd is bigger with one than the other. You know what? That's the sovereignty of God. Jesus said, I will build my church. He builds one big, he builds one smaller, he builds one in between. He has a Morgan over here, a Spurgeon here, and an F.B. Meyer in the middle, but he's building his church. Why was John the Baptist so content as his ministry was shrinking and as Christ was growing? Because he saw true successes from God and not man. Because John rejoiced in the success of another and did not envy. And one last thought. John lived to see the glory of Christ above all else, and that is the most important thought. In verse 30, he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. You may notice in your Bible, it says, He must increase, but I, and the must is in italics. It's really the must is not there in the Greek. Yes, we supply it mentally, but literally, He must increase, I decrease. Great contrast. He must because of who He is and because of who I am. I simply decrease in the face of His glory. What a wonderful attitude. Do you realize we are looking at the first minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? John the Baptist was the first minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first man to say, He is it. He is the Savior. Go to Him and be saved. And that the first minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so humble and self-effacing, I must decrease, he must increase.
A father and his small son strolled down the street in Chicago past the place where a skyscraper was being constructed. Glancing up, they saw men at work on the high story of the building. Father, said the little boy, what are those little boys doing way up there working on that building? The father says, those are not little boys, son. They're grown men. But why did they look so small, the boy said. Because they're so high, the father answered. After a pause, the boy asked, Then, Father, when they get to heaven, there won't be anything left of them, will there? (laughs) So true. You see, with the right attitude of John, the closer we get to Jesus, the more we rise into heavenly places, the less there is left of us, the smaller we become. I must decrease, he must increase. He must increase, I decrease. It's just a wonderful way to live your life. And that is the secret of John's contentment. Do you see how steady John is all through his ministry? Do you realize he starts off his ministry and Christ is the issue? Christ is central in all of his preaching. He comes all the way down through this great fame and popularity. He comes through the frowns of the scribes and the Pharisees. He comes through the flattery of his own followers. He comes through the shake-up of it all as his numbers are decreasing and the numbers of Christ are increasing. Throughout it all, he refuses to change his ministry message. He refuses to budge one inch from the centrality of Christ. And happy is the man or woman in all their ministry of life who will walk in the footsteps of John in that way. He was a contented man because he lived to see Christ glorified above all else. From the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, it was Christ, 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 Christ central, Christ glorified, and I don't care what happens to me in the process. If you remember his name, I've done my job, even if you forget mine. John the Baptist, coming to the end of his life, what a great example to all of us. May this be the motto of your life, and may it be the motto of mine. He must increase, I decrease. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the example of John the Baptist. Help us, God, to walk in his spirit and attitude. Lord, in this day of so many who will say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. May we step out from among this kind of shallow, narrow, sectarian thinking And may we live for the glory of Jesus Christ. And God, as those around us, friends, peers, loved ones are blessed by you and often outshine us in terms of influence, in terms of numbers that follow them. Help us, Lord, to remember a man can receive nothing unless it be given him from heaven. And that each one of us will account not for numbers, but for faithfulness to you. And you will reward us for our effort and our faithfulness, not our numbers. Father, we thank you that each one of us are gifted. Each one of us are meaningful. We may be outshone, but we are never useless. And don't ever let us forget that, Lord. And may we leave this message with a renewed sense of how important every hand is in the harvest, that the harvest is so great and the laborers are few. May we labor with all of our hearts unto you and rejoice wherever we see you work. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.